Hey y'all, and welcome to this week's episode of Herbal Hour. We have a special treat this week. A mycologist is on to talk about medicinal mushrooms. And we go deep into alchemy, the philosophy of healing as it relates especially to using mushrooms, and many other fascinating things. He is the founder of the medicinal mushroom company, Feral Fungi, and we go really deep in this conversation. It's one of my favorites. We touch on topics like what mycelium is, interesting facts about uh, mushrooms. We talk about common mushrooms and how they work, like lion's mane, reshi, all that good stuff. Um, We also dive deep into alchemy how the alchemical path could be used for healing, how it relates to herbalism, and how it relates to medicinal mushrooms. Our guest is quite excellent, and I'd like to welcome him. His name is Jason Scott. And to start off, I'd like to ask, how'd you get into studying medicinal mushrooms? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on today. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to sitting down and talking with you. Um, It's a hard question to answer. You know, I feel like people always ask me that. I'm in a pretty unique and niche field, um, specifically Mm -hmm. being in kind of two niche fields of mycology and alchemy. So people often ask how I got into what I'm into and how I'm running the business that I'm running. And for me, you know, the way that I perceive it is that I'm just kind of uh, an agent working for the mushrooms Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in a certain regard. And, um, you know, that I, I'm not necessarily kind of consciously pushing forward this agenda for the mushrooms, but rather, you know, they're kind of running the show and, and making the calls. But, you know, I was, when I was younger, I kind of ran into a lot of, um, conflict of, of what's going on in the Mm. bigger societal and cultural picture and, and just how we kind of address those things and how we look at those things. And I wasn't really sure, uh, how that really fit into my life and how um, to best uh, explore meaning, for lack of a better way to say it, um, within life and kind of like find my path and find my purpose. And, um, you know, did some exploring into looking at radical politics and kind of like more holistic means of living within harmony with the earth and and what that kind of looked like and how that what that meant to me, essentially, <clears throat> And so I ended up getting into um, studying permaculture and through looking at the world through the lens of permaculture and looking at kind of edible food systems and medicinal food systems and how we can kind of like provide things that we, we need for ourselves. And live kind off of the land. Live off the land, exactly, mm-hmm. and, and give ourselves that kind of like sense of... Um, of Uh, self-sufficiency self-sufficiency yeah Mm -hmm. self-sufficiency and and a a sense of um what's the word i'm looking for Uh, anyway so we're looking at how we can kind of take these cultural systems and kind of turn them into something where where Mm. we're able to provide for ourselves and, and able to kind of take care of ourselves in ways that we've given over that power to Mm. bigger corporations Mm. who aren't necessarily looking at the well-being of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so through that study and, and getting into the permacultural perspective and mindset and field and study, you know, I stumbled across mushrooms. And so I went to the radical mycology convergence in 2010, Mm -hmm. I think was the first one up, um, out of Tenasket, Washington. And, 
I was just kind of curious um, at that point, you know, had had like a little bit of experience with mushrooms and um, they had played a bit of a role in my life at that point, but I didn't really know all that much about them. And so, you know, the radical mycology convergence up, up in Washington was really kind of like first deep dive into all things mushrooms, looking mm-hmm. at everything from the biology of the mushrooms to the chemistry of the mushrooms to their medicinal uses and applications. And it really just kind of sent me further along this path that I felt like I was already kind of like treading and kind of gave me a little bit more um, guidance in a sense. So Mm -hmm. I became really curious and, you know, played around a little bit more with cultivation of mushrooms, which I feel like just entwined me more in that mycelial web and um, just kind of how to incorporate mushrooms into um, agricultural and, and kind of like homesteading practices from that permaculture perspective and then eventually I kind of came to falling into more of like a path of uh, ethnobotany so like cultural Mm. relationships to plants um, and ethnomycology cultural relationships to mushrooms and uh, herbal medicine kind of like looking at herbal medicine as one of the bigger um, potentials and solutions for kind of healing the mind, the body, the spirit, mm. and he- healing from these kind of traumas that we all um, that we all take on from this bigger cultural narrative that's happening. And I think a lot of people kind of like tend to overlook um, look at those things. And you know, we we don't have as much of a cosmology in this culture. It's kind of like an ambiguous culture that we live within in right. the Northwest, um, unless you, you've got roots to your ancestral cultures, but for most European folks, that's not really ever the case. And so, um, so yeah, it just kind of, that was, that was like my way of kind of reconciling how, how do we deal with these kind of like larger, um, cultural issues that most everybody is dealing with. And so from that, you know, just dove into and explored mushrooms on multiple different levels. Um, Again, kind of like looking at what they are more on metaphorical level as well as, you know, how they act within the environment, Mm -hmm. um, the benefits of medicines, um, you know, the relationship to cultivation, which I find to be like a really fun uh, hobby. Yeah, mushrooms are incredibly fascinating. I was watching... (laughs) a documentary that was talking about like the secret life of mushrooms and how they live in forests in these communities and they have these mycelial networks that are like tied to trees and they receive nutrients between each other and exchange things. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, the mycelium? Because I feel like that's just the most mind-blowing thing about mushrooms whenever I think about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely is it's a very unique... um, structure for an organism to have and you know mushrooms in a large large way are really how most things most biological organisms have come to live terrestrially or on Mm. the earth um you know it's like mushrooms were really what helped the plant life move out of the kind of like nutrient-rich broth of the ocean onto the land by helping to break down minerals and and um, transport it is kind of like creating symbiotic relationships with the plants by breaking down the minerals um, that the plants needed and then exchanging them for the sugars from from the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they do the same thing in the forest. And so it's, it's really interesting kind of like this niche place that they occupy. And, and to me, just kind of like the, the way that they're often really overlooked in the forest, you know, it's like people can go their whole lives with hardly ever noticing fungi, but they play such a central role. Um, again, in everything from food to medicine, um, and their mycorrhizal relationships within the forest ecosystems, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning, are such a crucial part of how forests ecosystems thrive mm. in the first place. And so that's a that's a huge part of I think what we miss when we, um, for example, think that it's okay to just deforest an area and then replant trees. Is you're taking out a whole slew of other organisms, including bacteria, including fungi, when you just deforest an area. And replanting it with other trees is not necessarily the equivalent of the kind of biodiversity that exists. Right. In a it's like ecosystem. uprooting a whole city with all the sewage networks and everything and then just putting houses yeah. in the same land. It's like it's not really as functional. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a really great metaphor um, for that. And so. So, you know, it's interesting and you can see that that shift in diversity and, and in. Uh, ecological relationships when you look at you know new growth forests that are planted by people and old growth forests that have existed for a long long time Mm. but in that too you also see kind of like a lot of potential Mm. through introducing again kind of like based off of our relationship and our observations of the mushrooms and how they're acting in the natural Mm. world and being able to introduce them back into potentially damaged ecosystems as maybe like one way that they can benefit that forest ecosystem and kind of like help to renew it back to maybe a more uh, holistic form, Mm. so to speak. Now, these days there's like a big upsurge of interest in mushrooms, especially, you know, medicinally psychedelic, things like lion's mane and cordyceps and shilajit and kind of everyone's uh, talking about these uh, mushrooms and there's this theory in uh, in herbalism from the more traditional uh, perspective, as you know yourself, um, and from an evolutionary perspective that what we get from plants is we basically ingest their evolution um, and how they adapt to their environment. So when you eat a plant that lives in this and that area, it fights off this and that germ and parasite. When you eat it, you get the same protective benefit because it produced those chemicals for itself. Sure. So you're taking that in. So what I've noticed with mushrooms in general, they seem to be, especially medicinal ones, they seem to be very specific to the nervous system and the immune system. Any, any idea on why that seems to be the case or is that not necessarily the case? Because like things like lion's mane, it's like nerve regrowth and cordyceps, you know, psych, you know, psychedelic mushrooms like psilocybin are very specific to the nervous system. So why sure. is that? Uh, I mean, that's a pretty big question, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, that you just asked. You know, I think in a lot of ways that mushrooms, um, very similar to plants, are, are kind of products of their environment, so to speak. And, you know, what you were talking about with the plants is plants produce secondary metabolites, you know, mm-hmm. so they have their primary metabolites, which are like the things necessary for them to survive as a plant. And then they have their secondary metabolites, which are, you know, usually like terpenoids, phenols, things like that, which they're producing to, um, 
for some purpose for themselves that then kind of transfers over and applies to helping our system in some way or another, you know, and mushrooms act much the same way. So they have their primary metabolites and then they have their secondary metabolites and, um, each one of them kind of has different ways that they help or that they benefit our system. So, you know, mushrooms are really interesting. And I think it's just interesting to note on this really quick to first, because, you know, we talk about plants, we talk about mushrooms and a lot of people just kind of group them together Mm. and just talk about mushrooms as like part of the plant kingdom. But, you know, we found out relatively recently, you know, in the past 50, 60 years that mushrooms are actually biologically um, far more closely related to animals or to humans than they are to plants. Yeah, so, they uh, they breathe oxygen, right? Yeah. And they so, uh, emit carbon dioxide. They're, that's yep. like a very big distinction. Yeah, so, yeah, and then when you look at the phylogenetic tree of life, they're much mm. more closely related to humans and to animals than they are to plants. So so there's something unique about that and mm. and also in the way that they evolve and the way that they develop, just like you were talking about with the plants, where the plants evolve over these long periods of times, the mushrooms, in my mind, in my perspective anyway, seem to have this um, quickening that happens. And so, you know, they adapt to situations potentially much more quickly than certain plants will, Mm. you know, to where they can adapt to um, environmental differences within a single generation, meaning that they can evolve and change and produce different metabolites within a single generation. So an, an example of that is like, you know, I'm sure you've seen, there's a lot of information coming out about, um, you know, mushrooms that eat or consume, um, oil or petrol waste, or there's Mm -hmm. mushrooms that consume plastic. And a lot of times what's happening is like these mushrooms weren't, you know, didn't develop naturally to consume these things is that when they're fed Hmm. that, that they kind of learn, um, you know, send information back through the mycelial network and then produce the enzymes that are necessary to break down that petrol or that, um, or that, um, plastic, you know, my, my good friend, uh, Peter McCoy even did a experiment with cigarette butts, you know, and taught mycelium, <clears throat> I think from an oyster mushroom, I'm not a hundred percent sure to break down, um, used cigarette butts, you know, which are a huge, um, pollutant issue right now is like, as they kind of go into the Mm. landfill and into the ocean and are filled with toxins and so they're adapting to their environment in real time now do you think they're able to pass on that adaptation because you know how the issue with adaptation in this life um aside from speaking about epigenetics which Mm -hmm. is like all the study of genetics that can be heritable uh actually non-heritable traits that could be gained during this life that could then be passed on do you um do you think it has to do with the mycelial networks and how they kind of set themselves up? How are they like learning over time to, to adapt to the environment? I guess this is kind of like an evolutionary biology question. Obviously, I don't think anybody really knows, but it's always a cool yeah, thing to discuss. I, I mean, yeah, I think there's, there's theories about it. Um, and I think, you know, um, kind of just how I was mentioning where in the natural environment, the, the mycelium will come up against some sort of potential food source. And maybe it doesn't have the capacity uh, to break it down when it approaches it, but maybe it sends that information back and then it creates some sort of enzyme that will help to break down that material so that it Mm. can then use it um, for food. Now, and that's where it gets really interesting too when you're looking at these like toxic substances and materials is, you know, you're not necessarily going to want to eat oyster mushrooms that 
that consumed uh, petrol or oil. I probably wouldn't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like... But also, you know, <laughs> we don't really know enough about, you know, what's left in the mushroom. I think there's still a, a lot of research to be done within that mm. kind of field. And why I kind of like look at and talk about mushrooms within the context of alchemy too is because, you know, one, I like to separate and differentiate them from the plants uh, as being their own kind of un- unique field and kingdom to look at and to explore. But in a lot of ways, you know, I consider mushrooms to be like the alchemistas or like the little alchemists of nature because their whole game, their whole purpose in the environment is transmutation. It's like they're taking, you know, they're the the first kind of set of decomposers helping to break down Mm. what otherwise would be just decaying waste and transmuting it into nutrients that can then be used and uptaken by other plants. Mm. Again, kind of getting into what role that mycelium is playing in the environment and so you know they have this amazing this amazing uh benefit of being able to transmute Mm. things that are otherwise uh undigestible and making them something digestible and Mm. and i think that's really interesting in the context of medicine too because Mm. you know when you depending on what systems of medicine you're looking at you know it's like the poison is in the dose and it's also in the preparation so it's like you know most people would tell you not to consume mercury but then when you talk to like people who are practitioners and proponents of Rasa Shasta Ayurveda, you know, they're going to make specific preparations out of mercury that, you know, has been purified over various different um, processes and then is now viable and is good for use as a medicine and is a really strong and potent medicine. Mm. So, you know, I just kind of think about like maybe what role the mushrooms can play in that as well mm. um, within the environmental kind Mm. of picture of detoxifying the soil, but also maybe it's transmuting that material, Mm. you know, and again, I think there's um, just more research that needs to be done there. That's a a fascinating uh, point about the kind of uh, alchemical view of mushrooms as like the transmuters, right? Because the idea of alchemy in its deepest sense, I mean, on the surface, it's, you know, transmuting lead into gold and it's the beginnings of chemistry and those kind of things, people doing all sorts of experiments. But on a deeper level, which we can kind of dive into because I love talking about alchemy, it um, it's the study of the spirit and the mind and the transmutation process uh, of turning lead into gold is really the question of life. It's how do you turn, you know, this life, Buddha would say, you know, the suffering of this life into enlightenment. How do you turn ourselves as we are with all our faults, difficulties, mental issues, depression, anxiety, um, lack of compassion? How do we transform that into living, like, into living gold, the spirit, basically? How do you transform material into the spiritual matter? Um, I think it's really interesting from to talk about herbs and and mushrooms in this context because we really don't know like what effect plants are having on like that deeper level. I mean, like if there's a reality that is unseeable by us or unperceivable, then, you know, these herbs and mushrooms could be affecting that and we don't know how. And maybe that's part of the reason why certain herbs, like you can try to research them for certain conditions. They don't seem to work, but for some people they're like miraculous cures. Sure. Um, So how do 
how do you view mushrooms alchemically in terms of when you're making medicines or when you're formulating these combinations of mushrooms? Sure. Um, well, again, you just kind of covered a lot of ground there, and um, those are really big <laughs> topics yes, to kind yeah, of yeah, absolutely. look at and to explore. Um, you know, one thing that I just want to touch on really quick mm-hmm. before we continue is like, I think alchemy very often gets taken out of the realm of the material and mm. kind of like purely relegated it becomes to the like psych- psychological or mm. spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but traditionally through the practice, it was, mm. it was everything. So it was the spiritual, but it was also the physical. And so it, it mm. evolved out of, you know, in the West, um, out, evolved out of Egypt and mm-hmm. it was really what they refer to as a hermetic science. Mm. <clears throat> and they call it a science for a reason because everything that they talked about from a philosophical perspective had to be able to be tried and tested in the lab. Mm. And then on the other side of that, everything that was tried and tested in the lab had to be um, kind of balanced. So there was a balance that happened between the philosophy and the cosmology of the alchemical perspective and the hermetic sciences and the physical practice that kind Mm. of underlaid it. And so, you know, when it's relegated into, you know, turning lead into gold, I think that's minimalizing kind of like what the potential and what the purpose Mm -hmm. of alchemy was. And it also tends to get people to kind of just like distance themselves or take themselves away from the real practical uh, application of laboratory Mm -hmm. alchemy, which, you know, to, to the hermetics was a huge part of that transmutation of the mind, body and spirit that you're kind of speaking of Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, it's like, like you said, there's really no separation between the material and the spiritual. Mm. And I feel like that's one of the shortcomings of science as we know it today <clears throat> is it it's a materialism and it's become really dogmatic. You know, there, you know, you can look into scientism is like people just talking about how the physical and the material worldview of science that precludes everything else that we don't know and can't claim to know and can't claim mm. to understand, which might be those like you were talking about that that spiritual or that metaphysical effect that plants or mushrooms have and mm-hmm. precluding that and saying, well, that just must not exist because we can't describe it or mm-hmm. explain it scientifically, you know, that's a shortcoming in of itself. And so to me, it's really interesting because yeah, alchemy was uh, a precursor to modern chemistry and to modern physics and to modern biology. However, you know, it, what happened is that those physical sciences that we talk about um, through the the royal societies distance themselves and cut themselves off from the spiritual side Mm. of things, which, you know, from my perspective is one of the reasons that we're so lost as a generation, as a culture. I highly agree. And one of the things, uh, shamanism, it's, it's big lesson. If you study kind of traditional shamanism, much of the the healing rituals that the shamans would do for people is um, is healing somebody from a condition called loss of soul mm-hmm. when somebody loses their soul. So they do this uh, deep ritual process where they journey with that person or they journey for them, depending on who it is. They may or may not use substances, uh, certain psychedelic plants to help them with that. Uh, not every tradition. Some traditions use drumming and things like that. Sure. Um, but their idea is that they need to find the missing soul. When somebody loses their soul, um, it manifests in our terms, uh, I believe, as anxiety, depression, loss of meaning in life, uh, apathy especially. That's like one of the biggest things because if you're still – if you feel a lot still, your soul might be suffering, but it's still there in a sense. It's not like distant. It's not – 
out of the body. I think I completely agree with you that when the conventional worldview, uh, or more specifically the worldview of the Western world, uh, became more focused on the material and kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. Because obviously, so alchemy, uh, chemistry comes out of alchemy, right? But there's a reason why these more metaphysical and psychological and spiritual aspects led to the formation of chemistry. There was some kind of, I believe, some kind of potentiality, some kind of deeper meaning in it that one inspired people to keep studying it. Because why even study some... Nobody goes out of nature and tries to find facts. Like everything that we do from science is really from an inspiration standpoint. Um, but we kind of have thrown that all away as like, uh, that's not really provable. That's subjective information. So, you know, let's just focus on the facts we can find. And obviously science has made such great strides that it, it seems to be really successful, right? I mean, we got the iPhones, we got the, we got everything, you know, it's just coming and coming. And a lot of it is from this materialistic view. But what's missing is that understanding that the subjective world, or you can call it the spiritual world or psychological world, we really don't understand what it is, but we experience it. Everyone can agree that, you know, they have internal feelings, internal thoughts. That world is just as real as this physical world. So I think in in reconnecting with uh, mushrooms and herbs, it kind of gets us re-in touch with this kind of deeper... Uh, subjective world yeah i mean i think you know i like to think of it in context like steven buner calls it the imaginal realm right mm-hmm. and and when you you're talking about that you know don't take anything of what i'm saying to discredit science and how far it, it's come because you know that's not my intention and i don't necessarily i don't believe that but what i'm saying is like there's a part that we kind of left behind mm-hmm. with the transition into chemistry and chemistry evolved directly out of alchemy. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the things that we use kind of came from the tradition and, and the practice of hermetic alchemy. So the Bain Marie, you know, was, uh, uh, developed by Maria prophetess, mm-hmm. the Jewess, um, who, you know, and we still use that today. It's a water bath, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they'll use that in laboratory chemistry today and they still call it the Bain Marie. It was developed by this woman who's practicing alchemy, you know, and even at that time of the divorce mm. by the Royal Society, most of the people who had a huge influential role on the scientific field were still practicing alchemy. Right. Like Newton, right? What's Newton. that, what's that interesting fact about him that he wrote three or four times more books on alchemy than he ever did on right. well, anything and else. And they destroyed a lot. And religion too. He wrote a lot about the Bible. Exactly. And that yeah. was very typical of the time that it was, uh, people would study all these sciences um, at once together. I think there's there's a key point in that. And it, it makes me, I, I think about this actually pretty often of like, what's like the next stage, you know? Because in the beginning it was like, the whole world was just like spiritualized. There was like, material was irrelevant kind of, the body didn't matter, early Christianity, mystical traditions, everything is spirit, that's what matters. Then like that kind of got mixed with some materialism and uh, like alchemy is a perfect example of that. Not even seeing the difference between like matter and the psychological or spiritual forces because as we were speaking about before, they would do these chemical processes but they sought to understand how the universe works like through principles and also how their even their mind works through watching these uh, uh, different processes. And they have kind of all these different processes um, 
delineated, but I wonder what the next step is like, because that spiritual element kind of got ripped out of science and now it's like, it's considered woo to even like consider the fact that there might be forces that are unseen and how do you study through material objects forces like that? But what's the next place? Right. Well, I mean, I think we're seeing a renaissance in those Mm. things. I think, you know, a lot of people who hear this podcast, maybe a lot of them for the first time, spagyrics is going to be a new word to them. Mm. But I think a lot more people than a year or two ago will know what spagyrics means. And I Mm. think that there's like a, a renaissance happening with these kind of like traditional meaning imbued Mm. um, perspectives on reality and kind of just going back to what you were asking about the plants and the mushrooms and what role they have to play in this, you know, it's like they're, I think from the scientific perspective, you look at them as passive agents, you know, passive objective agents that exist within these ecosystems. And we kind of see ourselves as separate from them or distant from them. Um, but I think a lot of people are kind of coming around to being like, oh, well, no, these things have an electromagnetic force. We have an electromagnetic force. There's a means by which we're able to kind of understand and see these things and communicate with them. That's beyond just the physical, like you were, you were kind of mentioning there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that people feel. And I think, you know, no matter who you talk to and how scientific and materialistic they are, they still have feelings. They still have things that they can't describe. They still have a subjective reality. And I think to write off that subjective reality is just not a really viable means of moving forward. And so I think there's this potential and this opportunity in working with plants and working with mushrooms and working with them in their Mm -hmm. more holistic context that's kind of presented to us in the form of spagyrics and, and the traditional preparations Um, and even just directly standing with them, sitting with them in the forest and talking to them. And even just going back to like what I was mentioning at the very beginning, it was like, I feel like the mushrooms really called me to this work, Mm. you know? And I, I feel like in various different ways I can be like, Oh, well no, yeah, that didn't happen. And well, like I decided to do this and I'm doing this, but then there's that other way of looking at it where it's like, well, no, it's like I can trace all these coincidences, you know, as far, so far as you can believe and want to follow coincidences and, and say, well, okay, well, all these things just led me to hear where I am mm. talking about this. And I, I always like how um, my good friend and uh, teacher, Seja Popham puts it, you know, he, he says, <clears throat> talks about the, that plant in the forest that stood up and spoke to you. And, you know, it's like, what, what was that plant? Mm. What was that moment when you kind of connected with the plant realm? You know, and I think it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people we're as we were kind of talking about before we're in this like very lost kind of culture mm-hmm. but we're still very rooted in the plant realm and think of i think of some you know i think of myself when i was younger and i think of of um other people who are, are kind of like lost and kind of overwhelmed by the bigger cultural narratives and things that are happening and people in that tend to get really lost in marijuana mm-hmm. and i think you know for me, that was one of the plant first plants that I like really deeply connected with and, mm-hmm. and it served its purpose at the time because it really, you know, helped me through a really challenging time. Um, but that was a plant that I was connecting with mm-hmm. and there was like a purpose for that plant being in my life and I can look at it from very like physical, like, oh yeah, I just like smoked weed mm-hmm. or I can look at it from a bigger philosophical perspective and see how it kind of helped me through that time. Mm. And then how it went on to introduce me to other plants and kind of like urged me on 
to a plant path. And I think, you know, can think early, even earlier on about the cultural connection and relationship to different plants and different flowers that I was introduced to through, you know, my grandma mm. and to the Italian side of my family and things like that, you know, so. That's uh, an interesting aspect of herbalism that I feel like is always worth talking about. And that's the intuitive aspect of it. Like uh, being drawn to certain plants or certain trees, being drawn to the aroma of a certain plant. Um, it really is a really mysterious phenomenon in general of why we're even into certain things. Like why certain things we like. Like the second I started really reading and hearing about herbs, I was just like, oh yeah, I love this. I don't know why. It didn't make any sense to me. And it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's the more you study, the more complex and interesting it is. Um, but it goes to that uh, deeper aspect that there's forces at work and you can call them, you know, the mind or the spirit or fate or destiny or synchronicity. I mean, they're all just words. We really don't understand what it is. But something about our intuition and maybe our inner guide, it seems to put us on the right path through what kind of gets us excited. Uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, he says, follow your bliss and doors will open for you. And sure. I, I think that's absolutely true. And in the wor world of herbalism, I think it's like that too. So it's, um, you're involved in herbalism and the specific door that opened for you, it seems, and you went down is the, the mushroom path. Um, and obviously that can change and it'll morph and evolve. Sure. Um, and for myself, I more found myself in especially herbs that have a strong effect on like mental uh the mental state mm -hmm. whether they're psychoactive or they're good for things like depression anxiety those are the herbs that sure. i always was most interested in um probably mostly because i could take them and i can feel what they did because yeah. some herbs are obscure like you take a certain root and it's like good for your liver but like how do you know it's good for your liver? Like you only know if you have something wrong with your liver and your symptoms go away. Right. But with other plants, like, I don't know, high dose passion flower or something like that. I was experimenting with that in high doses. It's like very, very calming. It's sure. very sedative. You can like feel it and it has a particular like energetic feeling. And I think I urge anyone who's interested in herbs to focus on developing relationships with the plants. That's kind of more from the shamanic tradition of like, just sitting with the plant, just hanging out, keeping it in your pocket, um, thinking about the feeling that it gives you. And like, think of it more as like a relationship, not like a, this is a substance and I'm going to take it in because for whatever reason, if you feel that deeper aspect, it seems to have more healing effects and why that is. I mean, who, who knows? It could be just through the ritual aspect, could be some spiritual things happening. I, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quantifiable. You know? Yeah. And, and there's a couple, there's a couple interesting points in there, you know, one, I really, like I mentioned, you know, with like the marijuana, it's like there's something with the plants that have a stronghold on our perceptive faculties, so to speak, um, that that there, there's a reason that they have those grasps. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, those are, the again, the easiest ones where you can give to people and you're like, oh, yeah, you don't believe that herbal medicine works? Yeah, here, smoke, smoke this cannabis and tell me herbal medicine doesn't or, work. Or for me, it was yeah, like, right. you know, try try this kava, you know, because yeah. I spent some time in Hawaii and in the Polynesian Islands, and oh, yeah. kava is like a huge thing. Yeah, kava is through, through cold... Um, cold preparation with water and, and served and drank in like a ceremonial way. And mm. 
you know, you could first you feel it numbing your mouth. Yeah. And then you just feel the kind of social anxiety melt away and the way that it opened up the conversation and the laughter and everything. And so that was like a really tangible way of seeing it. But then, like you're saying, there's all these different layers to what's going on. So there's the physical and you could take that and you could say like be a reductionist about it and take it down and be like, oh, well, it's the covalactones and the covalactones interact with our physiology in the specific way that causes this sensation but then there's that mystery piece of it too you know which i think we see we see a lot in scientific research in the in the kind of like with placebos and i don't think that that i think that's minimizing again what's actually happening but, um, well, it's an easy way to just get rid of a whole unexplainable phenomenon. It's just like call it placebo and let's not talk about the fact that people have like physiological changes from being given sugar pills because they believe they're getting treatment. So, right. But it, I mean, it's, something else it's an on. interesting thing. And it's an interesting right. thing too the stubbornness of the mind mm. and what kind of blocks that can put up for people too. Um, you know, that was like one of the first things I've done some studying in Nepal with a, with a Vija. His name is Madhu um, Bajra Bajrasharya. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the first things he was saying to us when we went over there was like, yeah, if, if somebody doesn't believe in the medicine that you're giving them, it's like, just don't do it. Just don't give it to them. And, you know, that's for for a lot of reasons. But part of it is just like, you know, how much that person believes in you when they come to you is like, it's like, it's just our system of medicine is so different nowadays. Mm -hmm. So like in Nepal and like in these shamanic or like medicine traditions that you're kind of referring to in this is when people were sick, they would go to these people and they would believe in them fully for their healing. Nowadays, it's not like that. Nowadays, people want to know what the ingredients is. People want to know how exactly it's going to help them. People want to know what the constituents yeah. it has this are substance and, and how it's it affecting them and, and how concentrated that constituent yeah. is. And Which is a part of it. It's, it's part, not it's the a, whole thing. It's a part of it, but I think it's a really yeah. myopic way of looking at it. Absolutely, because, yeah. you know, we can look, again, kind of leaning back on like the Ayurvedic perspectives, mm-hmm. like we can look at some of those medicines that they make. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research that backs up how they're physiologically working in the body and how they're effective. Mm-hmm. You know, so when he would see a patient and I would mm. sit in clinic with him and he would just tell the patient to go to the hospital, you know, be like, Madhu, what, why did you send that person to the hospital? Can you not do anything for them? And his response was always so funny. He's just like, no, no. He's like, I could easily solve that. He's like, that person's just too stubborn. So I'm not going to waste my time on it because it's going to affect me as the practitioner. Mm. And if they don't believe in the medicine that they're taking, but it also goes the other way too with the placebo effect, you know, shortly after that. I was reading an article where they were talking about how there's this uh, incongruency in a lot of uh, medical pharmaceutical trials because people are having kind of like the opposite of the placebo effect where it's like where where they're getting side effects. So they're getting like headaches and they're getting like, you know, whatever multitude of side effects come along with any pharmaceutical that you can take, which is like Mm -hmm. a whole whole other topic in of itself mm-hmm. um and isolating compounds and the problems mm-hmm. that that has but you get these people who since they're having side effects then they think that it's working <laughs> for them you know it's like oh well i like had a headache and 
I was dehydrated and it was p- pissing blood. So it must have been working, you know, and, and then have the placebo effect work for them in that way. Yeah. There's some studies of um, pharmaceuticals actually not uh, working as well if people don't believe in them. Sure. And there's just like a kind of uh, overall acceptance of the fact that they work. So yeah. a lot of... Actually, it's interesting if you look into the literature on antidepressants, um, from everything I hear, they're really, in general, not too much better than placebo in a lot of studies. Mm-hmm. Placebo does just as good as most antidepressants do, hmm. but still they're kind of um, given out quite widely. So yeah. Um, so you touched on the <laughs> word spagyric or spagyric. Sure. Can you tell us um, what that is and how, how you do that process of making a spagyric um, extract? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty, there's a lot of different, again, dynamics to it, and it's Mm -hmm. a pretty involved process. Um, But that term spagyric uh, comes from this fellow named Paracelsus, who was an Austrian chemist um, in the 16th century. Mm Mm-hmm. And he he liked to make up words all the time. He did. He made up a lot of words. (laughs) And uh, quite a character. His name is... Theophrastus Bombastus um, von Hohenheim is the shortened version of his name. Uh, more well known as Paracelsus, but um, that's where we get the term bombastic from because he was such a bombastic character back in the day where he would essentially travel around and he studied with a lot of folk medicine people learning um, kind of like the traditional ways of processing herbs and giving herbs to people. And then he would go to the medical establishments of the time and burn their books. And yeah, that's and that was, you know, fair stories <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, people per, per, uh, perceive that as what led to his ultimate. Yeah. I actually death. heard some theories that like he was like thrown out of a window or something. Yeah. I mean, he made a lot of enemies too. He, for, he did. He was very like openly. He was like, imagine someone in, in these times who became really famous and was like, uh, I don't even know, like talking on the news about how pharmaceuticals were killing everybody. Sure. And, and he was in some kind of position and then people were starting to like sweat. <clears throat> yeah. It's probably what it, what totally. it was Totally. Like. And, and yeah, so he's commonly known as the father of iatro medicine or f- modern pharmaceuticals because mm-hmm. he worked a lot um, with the different kind of preparations that would p- potentially be considered dangerous right. um, today. And um, so he coined this term spagyric, which mm. essentially means spouts to separate and azuros to recombine. Mm. So you're really kind of taking this material that you're starting with. Um, in my case, it's mostly working with mushrooms. I also work with a lot of plants. You're breaking it down into its component principles within the spagyric tradition, um, alchemical philosophy. It's the salt, the sulfur, and the mercury. Mm. So this isn't the the elements of sulfur and mercury or the compound of salt is what we're talking about as our philosophical concepts. Mm-hmm. So the salt is like the body. It's the most physical level. Um, I'm just going to kind of correspond all these things in plants because it's the most easy, I think, to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people will be familiar with their analogs in plants. Mm-hmm. So the salt in plants, it's the mineral salt. It's basically what's left over after everything else has been driven off. Um, and it's like alkali mineral salts. And then the sulfur is the soul. It's kind of like the individual nature of a thing. Um, in plants, it's the essence. It's the essential oil of a plant. Mm. Um, and then the mercury is the spirit. And this is why where we get the term spirits when we think about alcohol, right? Um, mm. So the spirit is like the universal of any sort of realm. So when we're talking about the plant realm, when you ferment and distill plant material, you're going to yield ethanol to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, it's a universal within the plant realm. That's why a lot of times we'll use uh, alcohol as a solvent to extract mm-hmm. other plants. So we think about like, you know, what there's like four or five main different sources of spirits that we work with. And there's going to be like cane, potato, grain, uh, grape. Mm-hmm. And um, we use those and we, we use them to extract when we're making other sorts of tinctures, the, the sulfur or the essence or the kind of like, what we would consider the secondary metabolites from those <clears throat> plants that we use then for their medicinal purposes. Now, that process that I just described, extracting <clears throat> the medicine from a plant with the spirit or the alcohol, is where most people stop, and that's the tincture, and that's kind of like where mm-hmm. they call it. The thing that makes a spagyric tincture different <clears throat> is that you're then including the mineral salts from that plant or from that mushroom that you're extracting. So you'd take that mushroom out of there, you take that plant out of there, you'd burn it down into a really fine ash, you leach the pure mineral salts from those ashes, you recrystallize them, and then you put them back into the final tincture. Mm. And you've got the holistic picture of kind of what you started with. So that's the most basic, and that's typically what we do when we're working with mushrooms and our spagyric tinctures. Mushrooms are a little bit more complicated than plants in a lot of ways, just because mm. in the tradition of hermetic alchemy, they just weren't explored as much. Um, and in a lot of traditional cultures, they just weren't explored as much. So um, extracting them the way that you would extract plants is just quite a bit different. So with plants, to do a full spagyric process, you know what we do is we take the plant material, we steam distill the essential oil. Mm-hmm. We capture that essential oil. We set it aside. We let it mature. Do you use separate batches? Like, would you have like three sections of the plants, and they would each go into one of those avenues, or is it like you use the same plant material throughout, and you kind of move it through all the processes? So I mostly work with the same plant material. Uh-huh. Um, it kind of depends on who you talk to. Okay, it's um, not. Again, it's not as strict of a science mm-hmm. uh, as much as of it as it is an art. And I think there's mm-hmm. kind of principal parts of that art that have to be followed to certain degrees. I um, think the idea makes a lot of sense because basically the fundamental idea is you're trying to get everything that's possible to get out of the plant. Because even when you tincture, you lose some stuff. When right. you put it, when you make a tea, you lose anything that's like fat soluble mostly. They call it essential oils. So yeah. we're always trying to get like the most holistic combination of all the things in the plant and spagyrics from my understanding uh from the alchemical understanding they talk about almost like a spiritual essence to it too it wasn't like purely materialistic right sure well i mean both of those things are going on so you know one of the ways that you can talk about it or think about it you know is like aristotle talks about the accidental form and the substantial form Mm -hmm. um so you know everything has its substantial form that's kind of like it's it's imprint. So we think of like a, an oak and that seed of that oak has that perfect imprint of what that oak is supposed to grow like. But then you put that oak in the soil and maybe the soil conditions aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a really windswept area. And so that oak assumes an accidental form based on the environmental influences. And people, you know, I like to look at or we consider it as like trauma that happens or that, that people deal with. And those kind of cause are whether it's a physical trauma, whether it's a mental, emotional trauma, you know, whether it's more effectual on the spiritual level, those traumas really kind of shape our lives and our expression in certain ways. And so 
from Aristotle's perspective and talking about the substantial and the accidental form, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get back to that substantial form of the thing. And so the theory from the alchemical perspective is that everything's always evolving towards its kind of more holistic perspective. So kind of mm. like the, the theory and the, the idea behind the lead into gold sort of thing is that gold is like the ideal seed form of any metal and that every other metal kind of happens because of accident, accidental form, kind of like impurities that have kind of burdened it along the way so that when you can strip it of those things and imprint it with that seed of its substantial form, then you can kind of turn it back mm. into what it was potentially mm. supposed to be. Mm. Um, we're getting a little bit like philosophical and obtuse with all of that, but I think that, so the point is, you know, like you were talking about earlier, they really drew from the, from the natural forces and the observation of nature that they were able to witness and so a lot of the, the practical application of producing a spagyric or for, for working with these alchemical things is, is uh, I like to think of it as like the, they're done within the, the confines of a still. Mm. And the still is like the, macro, the microcosm of the macrocosm. Mm. So to kind of take that into larger terms, you know, it's like when something dies, it gives up the ghost. And mm -hmm. so that's basically what you're doing, except you're capturing it into the, in the vessel of the, the still. Mm. And so we're playing with that axiom as, as above, so below, mm. as within, so without. And so that also goes back to what you were talking about, at, at how when we're working on these processes, it's also working on a more mental, spiritual, emotional level as well mm. um, within the practitioner. So, so we're able to, when something dies, it gives up the ghost. And it starts to drive off the more subtle parts of itself. So the most subtle part is going to be that spirit, that mercury. And then the individual nature, that essence is going to leave. And then what's left behind is the salts or the, the minerals um, that are broken down <clears throat> and re-digested into the ecosystem mm. and the environment. And then the theoretical concept of that is if you can capture those things within the still, you know, it's like in the the larger picture in the macrocosm is like there's those are hitting the firmament firmament of the universe and then kind of distilling back down into another form in the microcosm of the still you're capturing that process and you're kind of speeding it up because it doesn't have to go as far you're able to capture it in a smaller vessel to make uh, in a sense so so we distill off the essential oil mm -hmm. and then we take that plant material and we add a fresh handful of plant material to get the fermentation to go and then we distill off the spirit we purify that spirit and then what's left behind is the body you burn that body you pur purify all the carbon you get all the impurities out of that and you take the essential body you have a purified you know spirit that's been distilled multiple times and then you have the the essential oil or the sulfur that's been um, maturing, digesting, and then you recombine those things and you activate the salts with the most volatile principle, the, the spirit, and then it's able to take that sulfur and you, you've put it back together. So you don't lose any of those pieces in the mm. process. You're capturing them all because they don't have anywhere to go but to recondense in the still. And that, again, is mm. just from observation of nature. And you watch the cycles of water and how water is, you know, moves, is evaporated, is condensed and then 
um, recirculates into the ecosystem. Mm. And so you're capturing that process and it has a very physiological function and effect because you've got those secondary metabolites uh, that you've captured through um, the form of the essential oil and the subtleties in the spirits and the minerals and the salts and, you know, you being a naturopathic student, soon to be doctor, you know, you know the benefits of each of those things on their own, mm-hmm. why people take trace minerals. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't particularly endorse ingesting essential oils by themselves, but the theory is when you capture these three things, <clears throat> you get them in the innate uh, volume that they are within the plant. Mm. So different plants are going to yield different volumes of each of these things, right? So it's right. like if you did that process with lavender, you'd have a lot of essential oil. From uh, that. That's so funny because I was actually just going to mention lavender. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good one. Yeah. So la- lavender, you're going to have a lot of essential oil, maybe not as much spirit, maybe not as much um, salt. With something like horsetail, mm. you're not going to have very much essential oil, um, but you might. It's actually might kind have of a fascinating of- from. A kind of, so you were talking about the essential oils being the spirit aspects, the soul or the essence, the, the soul. The okay, soul so that's that's interesting in the fact that some of the plants that have the most essential oils, especially the ones in the mint family, yeah, those are all of your nervine herbs. Those are all of your like psychologically nervous system herbs, like lemon balm. Uh, what else? Peppermint too has a mental effects. Uh, lavender obviously is a great example. Right, but ironically, Thyme, rosemary. Ironically enough, lemon balm actually doesn't really have very very many essential oils. Really? Nope, it's super low. Interesting. I always thought of it as having a lot of essential oils because of its like intense aromatic fragrance. It's very potent, and and it's it's mm. not a lot, but it's kind of similar to rose in that regard. Where rose is like mm. one of the most potent fragrances you might. But it doesn't assume doesn't yield a lot of essential oil. Yeah. yeah. But that, I mean, I think that in of itself just speaks to potentially the potency. So again, mm-hmm. that sulfur principle is like the individual nature of the thing. So I like my teacher, Robert Bartlett, always puts it like, if somebody hands you a vial of lavender essential oil, you smell it, you know what that is because you've got that, you know, association and that relationship to lavender. And that's kind of like the key notes of like what that person is. That would be like my personality would be like what you would be capturing in that essential oil Mm. or like the difference between my personality and your personality. Mm. Whereas that spirit's more going to be like that universal thing that we share between us. Mm. It's interesting too, in terms of um, making tinctures of all types that if you uh, vary the percentage of alcohol use, for example, you pull out more of one thing. So they say for things like um, for lavender, you will actually want to use like high percentage alcohol, like high proof like 60, 65% because it does have all those essential oils. So the alcohol specifically pulls essential oils better. Um, is that related at all to this like alchemical view that the, cause you said the alcohol was the fermentation process was the, the spirit, sulfur, the spirit, spirit. The mercury, yep. the mercury. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Is there any relation between those okay. elements that make sense of why like the oils and the essential oils are more pulled by alcohol or more extracted? Yeah, well, so so alcohol would be a, a solvent, right? And mm-hmm. so the, that solvent is going to pull those sulfur principles out of the plant material. And so, yeah, with something like uh, with like lavender, you're going to have to have a higher alcohol percentage to pull those um, those volatile principles mm-hmm. that you're after. 
you know, and that's where it gets really interesting when you're working with mushrooms, you know, is like, because to get the benefits of the mushrooms, you have to have a dual extraction process. So you mm. really have to do the water extraction and you have to do an alcohol extraction with high percentage alcohol and you have to do them separately. Interesting. Because the, otherwise you're not getting the full constituency of the mushrooms, you know? And mm. so the thing that you're primary pull, primarily pulling with the water extraction in the mushroom extracts is the polysaccharides, mm -hmm. which are primary metabolites within the mushroom because those are components of the cell wall mm. of the mushroom, which is one thing that really differentiates them and sets them apart from plants. So their cell wall is made of chitin, mm. which is like our fingernails or like crustaceans. Um, so it's like a dense, hard material. Mm. And those polysaccharides interact with our system in a really specific way um, to where they're, they're broken down by the primary immune cells and and kind of like fed in a sense to our secondary immune cells um, to enhance our overall immune function mm. or more accurately demodulate our immune fun function mm. so most of the mushrooms are actually immune modulators and then you have to use that alcohol to extract the full set of secondary metabolites from the mushrooms um, in order to get the benefits from them, which are going to a lot of times be like antiviral, antibacterial. Mm. Um, typically it's those that are going to interact more with the nervous system, kind of going back to your question earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so they're really different in that way, which is a, is an interesting thing to, to think about. And so within the perspective and the practice of alchemy is, you know, the, the plants are their own kingdom. They're kind of like, you know, the training wheels for lack of a better word mm -hmm. of how to get started in the alchemical processes. And I always think of it as like, if you distill lavender and the lavender escapes the confines of the still, it's going to smell really good. Right. It's going to be like nice. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you're doing that with mercury, that's not, a good, <laughs> it's not a good thing. It's you know, it's, to star, basically. it's, it's going to be, it's going to yeah. be deadly. Right. So, yeah, so, um, so the, plant realm is really like the training wheels because it kind of like gets your laboratory practices mm. to a point where it's like okay i'm making sure that i've got all my parameters covered and and the system is closed and i don't smell it so it's like okay i'm doing a good job versus you know that's like how isaac newton died was like by inhaling antimony um and how many alchemists have died by inhaling out antimony or, mm. or mercury because mm. Those things are a lot more, you know, once they're a lot more fixed. So once they're volatilized, they're dangerous unless they're processed through a proper way to which they can be ingested, if that mm. makes sense. So, so it's interesting to kind of like mm. look at the differences between the different fields um, and how you process different mm. things to yield the medicines and what kind of benefits that they have to offer you mm. once you've properly extracted them. Mm. So that's where the, the mushrooms are a little bit different than the plants is because we have to use that dual extraction process on mm. the mushrooms to really get the full benefits. And then when you're looking at a full spagyric extraction, like I explained with the plants, is like most mushrooms aren't going to yield an essential oil if you just steam distill them. So, you know, that part of the process is a little bit more tricky um, when you get into it and when mm. you get into the meat of it. And so, mm. um, so yeah, that's, that's where it's also really important to kind of like distinguish because I think that the terminology is like there's not a lot of standardization around terminology through spagyrics or alchemical preparations. And I've seen a handful of people out there calling something a spagyric when 
more realistically, it's like a spagyric tincture or it's not a spagyric at all because it's not really pro processed properly. So I think it's really important to kind of like look at those things and then like look at how people are processing it and look at where they're learning these things from. Because if somebody, you know, picks it up from a book, there's a lot of valuable information in books that you can pick these things up in. But, you know, alchemy was a, an oral tradition for a really long time. And it was something that was passed from teacher to student to teacher to student. Yeah, they were trying so, not to get killed really <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> by sure. the, the church at for the time. So. For sure. So, I mean, if you, you know, if you kind of omit that factor, you mm. know, I think again, not to omit and say that people, can't do things properly if mm. they haven't learned directly from a teacher or lineage but i think it's a lot more potent and you and you are certain that people are doing something right mm. if they have that teacher they have that lineage mm. um, behind their practice right i mean because there's so many opinions on alchemy especially since we're so far removed from it now that mostly the only primary sources are just reading like paracelsus or something like that um there's this beautiful idea that i really like from alchemy that the role of humanity is to perfect nature. I think that plays into the kind of herbal craft is that nature is like at this point and that humans are here to kind of bring nature to that ideal gold state, which is like things like spagyrics and yeah. making compounds out of plants. I, I think. Yeah. I think that, it's an interesting point, and I think it's a controversial point, mm. you know, because I think you'd get talked to a lot of naturalists who... Yeah, would, say that nature's perfect, and then nothing say could that be nature's done. Perfect. And, and yeah, and, and I think, you know, you have to look at it as that those things are also working on you as you work to perfect yourself as well. Mm. So everything's in this kind of constant state mm. of evolution and perfection, mm -hmm. to so to speak. And mm -hmm. kind of going back to what I was talking about before, trying to reach that substantial form mm. and that kind of like seed imprint of itself. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've had people um, bring this up in like classes and stuff that I've taught and been like, oh, well, are you saying like trauma is a bad thing? And like, I shouldn't have experienced that trauma or like that that plant is worse because it's like windswept and, you know, has that accidental form that you're speaking of. And from my perspective is, is no, that's not true is that those are potentials and parameters for growth and parameters for um, mm. work. And kind of those are the things that we can see within ourselves mm. that we need to develop and we need to work on. And when you think about it in regards to like people and trauma and like psychological perspectives on the world, you know, it's like if you've ever met anybody who's got a lot of trauma and hasn't processed or dealt with that trauma, it's like, they've typically got some like pretty noticeable behavioral patterns mm -hmm. that are affecting their life either in some minute way, but usually in like a pretty large and overt way versus um, somebody maybe who's like looking at those things and addressing those things and working on those traumatic patterns and working on how they respond to those mm -hmm. traumatic patterns. So I think in like a larger context, you could look at the accidental form is those traumas as those kind of challenges to be overcome mm. and the substantial form as the transmutational work that we do to get mm. to those places on the other side of it so mm. that we can be better human beings so that we can live within mm. more of a uh, equanimity within the ecological mm. framework and so we can be better to each other mm. and so we can have better relationships with our friends and with our family. Mm. It's fascinating <clears throat> that, um, that certain plants the stresses from the environment is actually what makes them produce more medicinal compounds. 
And I think of humans like that uh, in some way. I mean, our body is an alchemical vessel. Like we eat food and our stomach, like gastric juices and everything, digest it, it goes into our body, creates our cells. We are transforming something that's not alive into something that's alive because everything you eat eventually becomes your body. Um, So I think we are the alchemical vessel really. And that's what, when you're taking like an herb or something into your body, you're basically like putting it into your body and trying to change up how the machine is kind of functioning. Um, And I mean, that's kind of traditionally the role of the healer too, right? mm -hmm. Is like, you don't get somebody who's just perfect throwing random things into there also well yeah you don't you don't just get somebody who's like who's like come into this world and never had any sort of trauma never had any sort of issue going out there and healing people you know it just doesn't happen that way it's like normally the archetype of the healer is like somebody who's wounded healer yeah exactly kind of like that archetype Mm -hmm. of chiron it's like that person who's had to experience that extreme hardship maybe that extreme illness something Mm -hmm. in their life that then gave them the foundation to go out and help other people. Yeah, I think I think there's a pretty simple principle here, and it's that you can't have true understanding of something without having an experience of it. So, like, if somebody wants to work with trauma, they really have had to experience trauma, or they can't really know what they're talking about. It's like, um, without the experience, you don't you you are always missing some aspect of it, and it's. It's like that with plants too, until you really have like an experience of the plant, whether it's like a psychedelic one or whether it's, you know, like a spice plant, until you have really an experience of what it feels like, you can't really help someone with that plant because you don't really know what that plant does yet. You might have read in a book or something, but you kind of get like a sense when you um, ingest a plant over a period of time of like, oh, this is the general thing that it does. And then you can kind of recommend it based on that, but... Um, that's all, always fascinating that they, they end up having almost like personalities plants when you feel them for a while. Definitely. And, and to a point that when you familiarize yourself with them like that is like, you can be way more effective with five to 10 plants in your arsenal than somebody who has a basic knowledge of 150 plants, because right. you know, what does that basic knowledge lead to versus what you've seen within your direct practice right. working with this small, Mm-hmm. field of plants that you have an intimate well that's that's the with. thing that it's i guess at its heart the, the way i see it is that plants don't heal you know the body heals the yep. uh the, the human body everything the immune system it wants to be healthy it wants to be whole it wants to be at its maximum functioning and all plants and other substances are doing are kind of you know moving around this force or that force in the body to kind of help that so from that perspective, you know, there could be 10 herbs that are right for that one condition. Sure. And really, it's just a question of but which one is right at that time for that person in that preparation. It's That's why it's such an art. Sure. And and also, you know, again, kind of like going back to the Ayurvedic perspective, mm-hmm. going back to like an energetic perspective of herbalism um, from the alchemical tradition mm-hmm. and the Western tradition of herbalism is you look at the nature of those things too mm-hmm. and you prescribe them with intelligence. You don't just say, well, like, oh, uh, willow's good for headaches, so I'm just going to give this person a uh, willow. Right. You know, when maybe they have, like, a cold, dry constitution, is like that willow's not going to be super helpful in that sort of... Uh, right. And that's situation. the way herbs are studied in research studies, and that's probably most of the reason why they're not as effective as they are in people's actual experience of them. Right. When used from, like, a deeper sure. aspect, not just sure. willow for pain, but willow for like that specific type of pain or this other specific condition right that people you know 
they noticed over like a thousand years of using it. They just oh, that's just what it does. I don't know why. Yeah. And they didn't need to know why, really. Yeah. So that's more of like an empirical way of viewing it. So to to wrap this all up, this has been a really awesome conversation. Yeah. I, I love getting philosophical. <laughs> Actually, yeah. it was a major uh, philosophy yeah. back in my days okay. in undergrad. So nice. I can and I can hang with Aristotle, although I was more of a Plat- uh, Platonist, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, what are some of your like go-to medicinal mushrooms that you use on a regular basis, and why do you like them? Uh, lion's mane is going to mm-hmm. be definitely at the top of that list. Uh, I think especially just for these times that we're in is mm. like lion's mane is I don't really look to many herbs or mushrooms as a panacea, so to say, but lion's mane just addresses so many, uh, things that people deal with in this kind of like cultural context in which we're living where people are typically overworked and stressed out and anxious and depressed and, um, you know, maybe that's leading to that or something else like the amyloid plaques are leading to, you know, lack in cognitive function and, and these kind of like neurodegenerative disorders, which we're seeing more and more mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we're not seeing as many viable responses to those as lion's mane. It's mm-hmm. like, it's amazing to me, like how much that works for people. Um, you know, I see it all the time when I give people samples of either lion's mane on its own or our clarity formula, which is a really simple formula, mm-hmm. just lion's mane. Mm-hmm. Is uh, that the one that ratio. I, is that the one that I tried? Yep. So that's, uh, this formula here, mm-hmm. it's just lion's mane, reishi and cordyceps. Mm. Those Super, are like the best ones. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I kind of jokingly say that it's like the holy trinity of mushrooms, yeah, you know, but, um, that's, that's kind of like demeaning to the rest of the mushroom yeah. realm. So I don't really think of them like that, but, to me, those are the three of like our most potent yeah. mycological allies. And um, I get people all the time who take this formula, who walk away, come back 10 minutes later and like, I feel clear. And again, it kind of goes back to like, well, you know, I question myself sometimes where I'm like, well, am I just that good of a salesman that I've like convinced this person that mm-hmm. it's working for them? So there's some of that like placebo and kind of like imposter syndrome that comes in. But then also you can look at a lot of the the practical physiological science and evidence that's been researched yeah. for years and years in the especially the lion's mane all this stuff especially that's with lion's on, mane uh regrowing nerves and things yep. like that like it yep. really has some effects for sure yeah and reishi with the immune system specifically with i mean reishi is kind of like the all around you know yeah um i i like to you know i get a lot of people too that will come to me we we do make chaga just because i think it's has its place and it's a beneficial mushroom and mm-hmm. people, you know, look for it. But, you know, when I get somebody who comes to me and is like, Oh, I want to take chaga. And it's like, well, why do you want to take chaga? And they're just using it as like a daily tonic to just kind of make sure everything's in line. I kind of try to point them to reishi instead, just mm-hmm. because it's a lot easier to get that from a sustainable source. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Have you studied um, at all into like the Chinese medicine view of these mushrooms? Oh, Cause yeah. they have like a v- interesting particular view. So, where like in the like research sphere and kind of the more herbless sphere, they kind of consider all the mushrooms more or less to do the same thing. But from a Chinese medicine perspective, uh, cordyceps is like very uh, specific for building um, uh, kidney. Yep. Kidney specifically, <clears throat> yep. which is like the energy force adrenals. Yep. And um, and reishi is really specific for the spirit. They said the shen for like yep. that spiritual force. So like. Yep. 
I think that the deeper that we study into these things, the more we realize there's more specific remedy. So like maybe, you know, three people have a weakened immune system or something going on psychologically, but like one of the mushrooms might be best for them because that one mushroom is kind of specific for that area that they're having a deficiency in. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is, I don't think we have time to get into it today, but this is where the doctrine of signatures and correspondences Mm. comes into play, especially with how I work with it Mm. in terms of the mushrooms. So you'll notice with each of our individual mushrooms, we correspond it with one of the inner seven planets. Mm. And so we work with those planetary archetypes to kind of like direct Mm. the mushroom a little bit more based on its energetic qualities, you know, whether Mm. it's hot, wet, cold, or dry. Mm. And then based on, um, traditional uses based on like its physiological actions because i think mushrooms are one of the most complicated medicines you know in chinese medicine they're considered to be superior herbs so means you can take them in high doses over long periods of time without having any sort of negative consequences Mm -hmm. well they're food basically they're in a lot of mushrooms you could just eat you could just eat them they just happen to be really expensive they're not a right but when you like you mentioned when you look at any sort of like book on Mm -hmm. herbs or on medicinal mushrooms you just get these long laundry lists of all the benefits. All the that things they, they found, you know, anti inflammatory, anti allergy, and a lot of a lot of that comes yeah. from the like you know, like I said, all mushrooms have the polysaccharides. So those polysaccharides in themselves have a wide range of physiological mm. actions, and so when you're talking about the mushrooms, they have that, and then they have the secondary metabolites that have their own specific. So, you know, again, kind of like drawing this in is like when working with the planetary correspondences, um, and working with the, the specific mushrooms, it's like, how do we best kind of like narrow this in and direct it to where it's going to be most effective? Mm. Cause again, then you just get into that kind of like allopathic model of right. herbalism or of naturopathy where you're just like, Oh, well this, this mushroom is going to do it because yeah. all the mushrooms do it. And then but it just doesn't, like, it just doesn't do anything exactly. usually when you view it from that point, unfortunately, or at very le- at least yeah. it's not as effective. So, yeah. I mean, if you're looking for like, you have this symptom and you want to like, you know, just directly treat it. I mean, that's what pharmaceuticals are good for. They're one single compound, super high dose, super effective, sure. you know, you'll get rid of that symptom. The question is, is it really healing you? I mean, sure. that's a deep question. Are the side effects worth it? AK, sure. there's no, I love this quote, um, that there's no such thing as side effects. Mm. They're all just effects. Yeah. <laughs> They're just the ones that we yeah. pr- we would like not to happen. But, sure. You know, when you force anything strongly, you're going to have sure. issues come up somewhere else. I mean, yeah. even with really strong toxic uh, herbs, it's like that. So you get sure. tons of side effects. Sure. Um, but yeah, so... If people are interested in your uh, in your mushroom products, where can they find them? Uh, do you have a website? Yeah, totally. So um, the name of my company is Feral Fungi. Uh, we are online at feralfungi.com. Uh, we're in a various different stores throughout the country, um, smaller herb shops mostly, uh, some you know uh, retail stores like that. Um, I also do some writing. It's it's needs to be worked on at this point but uh alchemmycology.com um i have some writing where i talk a little bit more in depth about um spagyrics and uh the doctrine of signatures and correspondences and we'll probably be putting some more um like uh mushroom monographs and stuff up as time goes on as well as other kind of like more philosophical articles delving deeper into some of the ideas that we're describing and talking about today um yeah and uh i also will be um you can find my writing through the the radical mycology book um 
it's radical mycology a treatise on seeing and working with fungi as well as verdant gnosis volume three um where i talk about more like the doctrine of signatures and correspondences so awesome cool well i hope everyone uh checks it out and uh adds you on instagram uh yep. At Feral Fungi, right? At Feral Fungi, yeah. Right, awesome name. And uh, add me as well, Holistic Psyche. And uh, and yeah, I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Good, sir. All righty. Yes. <laughs>